everyone. Welcome to the World Triathlon Edmonton Science and Triathlon Podcast. My name is João and I will be your host. And we're starting a series of podcasts with the speakers that we'll present at our 2020 Science and Triathlon Conference that we are organizing in partnership with the University of Alberta. Our conference is 100% free, so if you want to stay tuned to registration details or if you want to know any more news on the conference, then please check our website edmonton.triathlon.org and also make sure that you check our Twitter and Instagram accounts. We are at WTS underline Edmonton and we're also on Facebook as World Triathlon Edmonton. This is our first episode and we are excited to bring to you guys Dr. Stephen Seiler. Dr. Seiler has been working in Norway for the past 25 years as a university teacher, researcher and leader. He's currently a professor in sports science at the University of Agder in Kristiansand and he is internationally recognized for his research publications and lectures related to the organization of endurance training and intensity distribution. You might know him as the godfather of polarized training as his work has influenced and catalyzed international research around training intensity distribution and more specifically the polarized training model. Definitely give Dr. Seiler a follow on Twitter. He is at Stephen Seiler and you will not regret it. But most importantly, we're excited to announce that Dr. Seiler is going to be one of the presenters on our first seminars that will occur on September 8, 7 p.m. Central European Time, that is 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 11 a.m. Mountain, 10 a.m. Pacific. And Dr. Seiler is going to be presenting on the Holy Trinity of Training Monitoring. And that is also the topic of our conversation on this podcast. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Steven Seiler, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Hey everyone, welcome. This is our first episode, and today we're going to be talking with, with Dr. Steven Seiler, and we're going to be covering our topic of how to monitor training effectively in triathlon. So uh, Dr. Seiler, the first question I'm going to, I'm going to throw your way is, uh, a key team that we established in the 2017 Science in Triathlon Conference is a means to make sure that we're successful in this in the sport in the future is related to the development of more appropriate training monitoring measures and as well as uh, a more appropriate use of these training measures to facilitate to facilitate training and recovery so starting from the very basics uh, what are we talking about when we discuss training monitoring and why is this uh, a key and an, an important step to ensure success in triathlon and in endurance in general yeah, well, thanks for the question. I, I think just fundamentally in any enterprise where you're investing a lot of resources and trying to achieve some outcome, uh, if you're not monitoring the process or measuring the process, then you don't build any kind of uh, institutional knowledge. You don't know what the relationship is between the input and the output. So this is just a fundamental. And it's certainly true in the training process that, that of course, you can, you can train and you will get better up to a point. But once you've been doing just a, a, a it doesn't take very long uh, in a training process before you start needing to be a bit more diligent, a bit more careful in how much training and, and what, what am I achieving with that training. And then start to fine tune and adjust based on the individual. So that's monitoring. Uh, we want to be able to, as coaches, have build up a kind of institutional knowledge. What are, what are the general tendencies? And then we want to have individual uh, control, you know, because different athletes will respond a bit differently. 
to some of the details of the training process. It, that's you know a little bit where the magic is still for the training for the coach and the athlete and their interaction with each other. So you know th these are the this is the basic why do we do it? Now the next question of course how do we do it? And, and that's where things get challenging, of course, because there are a lot of different things we can measure with varying degrees of difficulty, with varying degrees of accuracy and consistency, and varying degree or varying levels of uh, relationship to you know the actual process. And just recently, I tweeted and I asked. Uh, the, you know, I have quite a few Twitter followers, so it's a good kind of focus group. And I asked, I said, if you could measure, in quotes, anything and everything, what would you measure, you know, in the monitoring process? And the, the answers were all over the place. You know, and this, this is a pretty solid group of people, the elite, some elite athletes, some world champions, some elite coaches, uh, sports scientists. And it ranged from, you know, how do I feel climbing up the stairs in the morning to I want to be able to measure cellular signaling and continuous data stream of blood lactate. And, you know, so all, all levels of sophistication and simplicity were the answers from people who have been doing this a long time or, or you know, so I think that in a way shows that there is no uh, current consensus on what is the way, the one way, the one package of monitoring tools. So I would, you know, we're continuing to look at this. I think there are some, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into this a little bit. I think there are some constraints that we can look at to try to narrow the field, but um, key issues are with any kind of measurement you use, whether it's the how do I feel today test on a scale of one to ten, or hormone measurements, or heart rate, heart rate variability. It, the key is consistency. You know, if you're going to measure something, do it always do it the same way every time, uh, even if that measurement is wrong, consistently wrong. If you always measure it the same way, it can still be useful at the individual level. Now, it may not be useful for any kind of cross comparison, but if you're only interested in that athlete and how they respond, and when they say, oh, I feel like crap climbing up one flight of stairs, that can be useful. That can be a golden indicator of readiness to train. So, again, for the re for people like me, the scientists, we want we want methodologies that cross over that we can compare in big groups and so forth. But for the coach, that may not be as important for them. It may just be, you know, I have this relationship with this athlete, and when they look me in the eyes and say this, I know they're ready, or I know they need a rest day. It can be that simple. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and that doesn't sound very scientific. That's just, that is still the reality of where we're at. And when we do the research studies, looking at different tools for monitoring, um, it is still such that the proverbial canary in the coal mine, if you know that expression, the, the first 
indicator, the mm-hmm. most sensitive indicator, is they are still these psychological kinds of measures. Uh, so when you ask highly motivated athletes how they feel, and when they tell you they're tired, and they're not so keen on training today, that is meaningful. That is a very sensitive indicator that will trigger. It'll pop, you might say, before the heart rate variability data or the hormone data, if you understand. So, mm-hmm. so that's still where we're at. Um, uh, you know, and, and now if we, you know, if we keep moving down this path, you're probably going to ask me about the, the trinity you know, and, and, uh, and we'll get into some of this is how, how can we kind of hedge our bets and create a, a reasonable checks and balances system. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to go into the into the Trinity. But uh, one question that I, w- I would like to ask you based based on that is uh, I, I've seen that uh, that thread on your, on your Twitter. And I think it was that Dr. Michael Joyner, who uh, his reply was something as simple as, you know, uh, perceived exertion and external training training loads and no need for technology that's that 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 you can basically uh get by with just those bits of information and like you said i guess as as long as you're doing it consistently that's that should be good enough uh but one thing that i I didn't see in that on that thread and then uh, i'd like to ask you if if you could measure anything in 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 particular and have access to to all the data what specifically would, would you measure well i would measure what i do measure and then since I, I kind of coach myself with varying degrees of success and I coach my daughter, uh, what do we measure? I, I'm, we're in that holy trinity. I, I, I want to know power pace. For me, it's power because I'm cycling. For my daughter, it's pace. She's running. So I want that external load. And then I want to know how they, we are responding physiologically in my my most accessible window there is heart rate mm-hmm. and you know it's the calibrated heart rate as far as you know I know resting and max heart rates for both my daughter and myself so I can calibrate those things and then I then I ask a lot how do I feel and how does she feel and you know and, and she's touching feeling that's what she's really good at is being tuned in to her own body so I trust her nuanced uh, feedback on how she feels and and after you know some years in the game at 55 i'm pretty good at asking myself how i feel and and asking how do my legs feel going up the stairs and you know you know just all these basic things so that's my my trinity is and it's the one i still i'm going to end up recommending to others is this combination of external and internal uh load or you know that, that gives us a kind of a checks and balances because mm-hmm. each of those three methods uh, have their, of course, their weaknesses. Yeah. So one of the things that I, uh, I always see on, uh, on your Twitter as well and in some of your, some of your lectures and, and some of the other podcasts that you've been, that you've been on uh, is this idea that you, you constantly have some sort of, uh, I want to call it an index workout. I, I guess that's, there'll be a, a more proper term that I think Carl Foster would use very often, um, in the sense that you you repeat the same training session every now and then, and then you use that as part of your your whole training to make sure that your perception of effort and then your your heart rate and then your your pace or your power um, are actually progressing. So 
how would you go about integrating the the whole Trinity um, in within your your training program? And then a little bit more specifically, um, how do you see this being able to uh, to be done with triathlon, considering that you basically have to monitor your swimming, your cycling, and your running, and then try to integrate all of those to come up with one uh, one overall measure of your of your training load or your training stress. Yeah, well, there's a number of different questions because one is you're on two sides of the equation, and on the on the performance side, obviously, I'm interested in a developmental process. I want to know, for for example, if it's my daughter that I'm coaching, we do we have some index workouts, you might call it, that um, where we have good control. Often they'll be on a treadmill. Uh, the same treadmill that she uses every day, you know, anytime we do those workouts. Mm -hmm. So we know it's consistent and the same temperature in the room and all these things. And maybe it's five times eight minutes or maybe it's 10 times 1,000 meters, you know, something like that. Uh, it depends a little bit on the on the race that we're kind of calibrating up against, the, whether it's a half marathon or a 10K or so forth. But those workouts uh, do give us a good, you know, they're truth tellers. They, you're not going to run faster than what you can generate during these key interval sessions, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, and so that's the way we look at it. But then, like I, I, I recently tweeted, the, the additional information, there's one thing to just measure how fast, what's the average pace for a 10 times 1,000 meter with 60 second recovery. But it's another thing to look at the physiological responses and, and year on year or month on month, you know, and, and so I tweeted just recently a, a year on year comparison of uh, what was prescribed as a 10 times 1,000 meter workout, 60 second recovery. And it ended up the second year being 12 times 1,000 just because she was stronger. She was in the zone. And, and wanted to do two more. Um, but what it showed was that her, the internal cost of doing that workout was much more tolerable and much more, I would say, consistent with actually being able to run at that pace for 10 kilometers this year than it was last year. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the learning process that the monitoring helped us achieve was that she was we learned that this athlete was executing her high-intensity interval sessions actually too hard. And it wasn't sustainable for her. It was just burying her. She was almost racing every high-intensity interval session like it, was a, like it was a race. Well, you can do that a couple or three times, and then pretty soon you're, you're buried, you know, because the stress of just the workouts becomes too much. And she, it wasn't sustainable. She didn't perform well. So we had to say, okay, well, now we got to put the brakes on a little bit and, and we're going to always shoot for like 90%. And, and one year later, that's what you see. And the only way you know that is measure both the external, the performance part, and then the cost part, you know, and, and also, you know, I measured both lactate. I could just look in her eyes. I literally, I took a lot of pictures of her. It's just a reference to see how is her face. Because your face is very hard to, to hide pain and fatigue in your mm -hmm. face once when it starts raining, you know. And, and I can just see a calm face that said, this is an athlete that is within herself in the eighth 1,000 meter. And she wasn't within herself 
a year ago. So there, you, you know, again, you've got these three different sources of information that triangulate the perceptual, the because I'm asking what you feel, and I can just see on her, you know, in her, the way she was, I'm good, I've got this. You know what I mean? You, you, you have this that you can tell your athlete is working, but within that flow state that where you want them to be, that they're not being crushed by the workout itself. And uh, that's, so that's perceptual. Then you've got the physiological and then you have the actual hard, you know, the numbers, the pace, the power. And, and so if I get that on some index workouts, then I get a good picture of my athlete, of myself, or I think I can get a decent picture of any athlete, uh, but it does help to be able to look in the eyes. It does help to be able to get that perceptual information also. Right. Uh, Dr. Sawyer, how would you, uh, how would you go about putting those, those three together uh, within a week if you're swimming, cycling, running? Uh, say if you're, if you're an age group triathlon, uh, triathlete, how, uh, how often would you do that? And uh, would you use that, say, for example, as part of your warm-up uh, and uh, trying to adjust your, your, your training intensity for that day or even, uh, or even your training volume for that day just based on how you're perceiving the first three to five minutes of your training session of your warm-up based on what your RP is, what your heart rate is, and then what your power or your, your speed or your pace are at the same time? Well, there's a lot to unpack here. If I were coaching traffic, the first thing I'd say is I would probably, because I literally sat here and played with this today. Uh, I think the triathlon is a, is a real puzzle and it's an interesting puzzle. Uh, the first thing I would do is I would think in terms of 14-day blocks uh, because I find a seven-day block, even for a single sport, like even running, is too constraining. It tends to put the athlete in a situation where they're trying to pack too much into seven days mm -hmm. because they feel like they need to do this hard session, this long session, this speed work. And, and, and then it ends up being too intense. There's too much heavy loading and they, they don't achieve the appropriate intensity distribution. So I, for my daughter, for example, we just stressed it out to nine days, first 10 and then eased back to nine. And that gave her just enough room. Well, with a triathlon, I'd go to 14. And then, you know, if you take a, an elite level or a pretty really serious age grouper that might be trained twice a day, well, that, and you say you're going to take one day off every 14 days, uh, that, that puts you at about 26 training sessions per 14-day cycle. And if you're trying to do 80-20, you know, kind of in that meaning that 80% of those sessions are talking pace, basic base training, you know, just mm -hmm. under the first lactate threshold. And, and I do think that's appropriate for sure for the triathlon. Uh, well, that's about 20 of those 26. And then the other six are going to be high, you know, the more the high intensity. Now, that could be threshold, that could be field to max intervals, or, you know, within that high intensity range. So then, and that's, now I've got, if I can just get that distribution right, that solves quite a few problems in terms of manageability, recovery, and so forth. And then in the triathlon, I am going to start thinking about, okay, these six, five, six hard sessions I'm going to do in that 14-day period, um, how am I going to distribute them? And that, the default would be to swimming, to running, to cycling, right? 
but it might not be that you choose that. It might be that you look at the race situation, you look at your strengths and weaknesses, you look at the, you know, how critical running is, whether there's some transfer from cycling to running, which we, we believe there is from research. And then you might say, oh, I'm only going to do one of those as swimming, two of them as cycling, and three of them as running. Maybe. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know what I'm saying? So, so this is where you start to play with that distribution a bit and then look at how they respond both acutely and chronically over a, a bit of a time frame. And you start to find how does this, what is the right combination that gives this athlete a kind of a, what, what I want to say, a, a, a flow in their training that where you see it's manageable for them, they are progressing uh, and they're staying healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I tend to, you know, I would say start at some basic distribution, you know, whether it's 80, 20 or 85, 15 or 70, 30, you know, I'm not gonna pin that down on you, but start with some basic distribution if you believe is, is functional and then look at your hard sessions and, and say, is there a reason to default to go away from a, an even distribution there? There may be uh, based on just like, for example, the Olympic type triathlon, there's clearly some, some issues there where you say, well, you don't win unless you can run really fast. So that's, that's a key. Uh, you got to be able to get out in the water and begin the hunt, but then, so you know all these things. So yeah. then you, you can, you can, put a weighting on the intensity and the performance level. You're going to be freshest. Another issue to think about, and this gets to the durability point, is that if we think the triathlon will always be a war of attrition, you will always start freshest for the swim. So there's no residual fatigue Mm -hmm. carried with you into the swim. And you will always start the run having a significant amount of residual fatigue. Uh, so that plays in if I'm thinking, how do I, how do I uh, program my training? How do I position the running sessions so that they're, they realistically re- recreate what they're going to have to be able to deal with in races? Because they will never have the luxury of starting that run fresh, for example. Mm-hmm. So it may be that, that we do running interval sessions kind of as brick workouts that we, we all, you know, we often lead into them with something fatiguing so that we get their threshold pace down to where it really is in a race uh-huh. because it's not what it is fresh. You with me? Yeah. And so these are some of these issues that I think are very interesting in the marathon, in the triathlon that, uh, uh, you know, if I were a triathlon coach, that's where I would start. You know, I'd start with the basics, basic distribution, and and then I would start tweaking. Mm-hmm. And we're always tweaking with an eye to sustainability, an eye to managing the overall stress load that that athlete is going to be imposing on themselves. Because mm-hmm. uh, we often think about, you know, measuring the intensity and the work, but we forget that, look, this is really stressful. Man, the triathlon is just a is a perfect example of a, a stressful. It's logistically stressful. It's managing body deterioration. 
and it's and of course it's all the traditional endurance training things. So it's it's I think it really is an interesting puzzle to solve, uh, and that makes the monitoring part even more relevant. Uh, now, going back to that trinity, and then applying it to these three, then then you have to be a bit careful because I think what you will find is number one, like the physiology, for example. Max heart rate is going to probably be different for all three, mm -hmm. or peak heart rate, whatever you want to call it. But but you know, cycling, running is it's not unusual for there to be six to eight, even ten beats difference in max heart rate. Swimming is can be way different because mm -hmm. it's just a total different orthostatic situation. So so you really have to you know tune in if you're going to use heart rate in those three. It may be that in swimming, heart rate is problematic to use. It's less useful in swimming, maybe. Than it is in, in running and cycling. Uh, I'm not sure what the swimming people would say, but so you need to do some individualization re relative to the specific discipline, mm -hmm. and then you have to assume that the the load on the body, that the kind of stress that's associated with the tougher workouts in these different disciplines will be different. Because yeah. you don't have any eccentric loading, for example, in uh, mm -hmm. cycling. Or swim, so you're not going to get that kind of stress. You're not going to get a lot of uh, muscular tendon stress. Swimming, you may get some shoulder uh, repetitive strain injury issues, but for running, you're going to be more sensitive to, you know, when I if they do high intensity, if they do something that is like speed, you know, workouts. How does their uh -huh. muscular handle that? And and that won't show up on the uh, the heart rate values that won't show up on the speed, but it, it'll show up in, when they are perceptually saying, like, "Man, my legs! <laughs> I can't walk up the stairs today." Or, I, or the <laughs> outside of my thighs is sore to the touch, you know, because I've got some uh, some some issues there. So these are the that's where you have these checks and balances. That some of these your feedback will have varying degrees of sensitivity for the different sports or the different mm -hmm. yeah okay. and that, that's a pretty good uh, a pretty good take when you when you mentioned the the injury piece as well uh, just as a reminder we we have dr veronica vlack who's gonna who's gonna be presenting on our conference as well and it's gonna be it's gonna be talking one of the podcasts and she's gonna be presenting her work where she basically had an analysis of like what types of sessions are actually more uh i won't say detrimental to the athletes but are more uh may cause or may have a greater uh possibility or chances of actually leading to, to an over in, overuse injury uh, in, in the future risk, risky yeah well, yeah it's, it's always risk and, and I think I think that's a really important way to think about things both from a stress but also from just an injury mechanism point of view is risk benefit yeah uh, you know, if you do for example plyometrics and you're gonna have to it hasn't done much of that you might get a benefit for the running, but you may just end up giving them a big old Achilles injury. Or, you know? <laughs> so, so you have to think about risk, risk to benefit for all of these different possible tweaks you could do on the training. Uh, and often, simple is better. Yeah. Because I, I, again, I think the triathlon is, all endurance sports are, but the triathlon is particularly a, sustainability issue. It's, it's all about keeping my keeping healthy and, and 
to you know always being I, I think pretty conservative in the sense that doing the work is going to get you pretty far mm-hmm. staying healthy to be able to stack workouts on top of each other over a period of weeks and months that's going to give you an impact so you don't need to do the epic sessions as much as you need to just have consistency and that's that's a good transition to uh well my next question to you would be because um, i guess building on that uh on that durability piece on that that consistency uh one of the things that, you, that you're going to be be talking about as well is, is this idea of, of durability um how would you how would you define that and um what do you actually mean by by durability when you're when you're discussing yeah. this specific concept yeah so it kind of got of course it's not totally new at all but when i started cycling again it just stared me in the face that that if i was at a specific power low intensity that was you know in theory below my threshold that as i got fitter i could just go longer at that power without my heart rates starting to take off and drift up and and we've talked about cardiac drift for decades mm-hmm. so that's not new and, and there are different reasons that heart rate can start to drift upward even though your pace or power stays the same. Dehydration, uh, you know, heat, stress. But, but if you have those under control, it will still drift up eventually because of just muscle fatigue, because of mm-hmm. glycogen depletion, because the, the, the brain is having to recruit additional motor units to do the same work and it's becoming less efficient and so forth. So if you think about a super durable athlete, it's an athlete that can just take off at a steady pace and just their heart rate just stays at that, the same place it was after 15 minutes. It's still there after 90 uh-huh. or 120. They're durable. They've got the, the, the match between external workload and internal workload is staying constant. Mm-hmm. Whereas the athlete that is not durable, that maybe has, hasn't been training very much. Well, they feel good for 30, 45 minutes, and then things start to go go sideways, and it hurts them more. They feel like now after 90 minutes of running, they are ready to go home. Uh, whereas the the, the, the long-distance runner that's used to that is, is in the groove. Mm-hmm. And so that's a durability issue. And if we were to take those two athletes and measure how fast they are in a – 2,000 meter, it may be that they were the same, but the the one athlete, just because of the training volume they have under their belt and their experience, they just handle the longer workouts much better. Mm-hmm. They're more durable. Well, clearly that has a relationship. That has a that's what we want to achieve if we're thinking triathlon, mm-hmm. because the triathlon is by almost by definition a durability competition. Mm-hmm. You, you don't win by flying out first in the first five minutes. You win with your durability, whether it's stretched over two hours in the Olympic triathlon or, or eight hours in, a, in an Ironman. It's still a durability, durability issue. It's which of these athletes is, is fading least you know, in this war of, of attrition that's happening. And uh, with this, this durability, uh concept and i guess one, one of the things that, that you you mentioned quite i was quite uh, quite a lot is this this ability to be frequently training to have consistency within your training program and so on uh, and i guess this goes back to 
the hierarchy of, of needs for the endurance athlete that you they established or that you uh, that you presented a few years ago uh, and i guess it matches really well with with uh, a big body of your of your work in the concept of the polarized training so when you when you when you're thinking about training strategies to, to build the durability uh, would you go with what is uh, based on your uh, on your hierarchy of needs of a higher training volume uh, a training intensity distribution that is it's mostly polarized where you uh, basically do most of your training at those uh, lower intensities so zone one in that three zone model and then stick with 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 that model or or do you see any any different approaches with with triathlon and in in particular with one specific thing that you mentioned that triathlon goes from you know anywhere between two to eight hours depending on which event that you're that you're going but uh triathlon has also been shifting to some faster events like the the super some well some races in the super league uh and the mixed relay triathlon that was, was supposed to debut in the olympics this year but it's going to come up now in 2021 do you see any any shift in those ideas in terms of training or do you think that uh that still holds true for all of the disciplines uh, good question well based on the research we've done and in, in a lot of different sports we've seen that a, a basic polarized or pyramidal approach you know and, and we can get into the, the difference there but the only difference between the polarized and pyramidal is just a little bit what you do the distribution of threshold versus above threshold training but the the fundamental is any way you cut the pie they're still doing a lot of low intensity mm -hmm. or below the first lactic term uh, and and so in that model you can show we've seen it in, in Olympic champions, world champions, all the way from 1500 meters up to Ironman. Mm -hmm. So that's all the way from three and a half minutes to eight hours. And once you get below that, get into the 800 meter, then things start to change in terms of distribution. But you can see highly successful performers across that whole time spectrum. And, and let, you can even take within a sport like cross-country skiing. Now, that's a single sport, but they have races that last everything from three minutes to two hours, two mm -hmm. hours plus, you know. Uh, and the, the, the athletes that win the three-minute sprints can also win the 50-kilometer races that last over two hours. So, and they're training basically the same way except for some key workouts, some speed sessions and, you know, just – fine-tuning some of the high-intensity sessions to the specific race pace mm -hmm. and race conditions. That's that's what you really end up seeing is the basic structure is the same, but the specific pacing and how you put together the hard sessions, that is influenced a lot by race pace. Mm -hmm. You know, what is race pace? Uh, and, and if you talk with Canova, uh, who's trained the Kenyan runners all the way from 800 meters up to marathon it's basically the same except he's very you know he's very tuned into how he progresses those race based sessions uh -huh. those hard sessions um so that i i with hand over heart feel that the data is consistent with saying that at least to a broad range that i think encompasses the entire triathlon spectrum from 20 minute competition time up to eight hours you have the same basic pattern. Uh, but then then the thing that becomes interesting is, yeah, we're going to do a lot of low-intensity work for all of these, but if I'm a, a sprint 
relay triathlete, then I may say, I don't need to do six hour rides necessarily. Mm -hmm. So I may choose to do more two hour rides at a, at a slightly at closer to that first turn point. Mm -hmm. So within that low intensity range, that green zone, whatever you want to call it, there's different ways to skin the cat. There's different combinations of duration and intensity that you may choose to use. And if I'm, I'm on the very long end that I'm, I'm going to, I want my athlete to do some of those very long rides. If they're a pro, you know, pro tour cyclist, they need to be able to sit in the saddle for six hours. Mm -hmm. You know, the, that's the big, that's the distinguisher in the classic, the monument races. Is there an hour longer or a little bit more than an hour longer than the typical pro tour races? And that cuts, that separates uh -huh. a group out that just, they can win those races when the others are fading away. So mm -hmm. duration, that durability stretches over many hours. And, and so if I, if you're an Ironman specific, then you need some of those really long saddle sessions and you need some long, a lot of long runs. If you're a sprint, you're going to maybe tweak up intensity, bring down duration a bit, mm -hmm. but your dis your overall distribution is still going to be the same. Uh, Dr. Sully, if you allow me one, one last question on, on this topic, because we were quite a few a few minutes into into our podcast today. Um, in one of your, I don't remember if it was a recent tweet or a, or a podcast you were participating in this idea of uh, durability as well and being able to perform later in the race. You talk about this concept, like sp specifically, I guess the example was with cyclists that, you know, at the end of those, uh, those five hours of riding, you still have to be able to put like a maximal uh, or close to maximal or very intense efforts on those on those last hours. Uh, the last hour of, of running. Um, how do you see uh, doing that with triathlon, specifically with with the cycling to the running transition? And as you mentioned, you know the running is often uh, the key factor that determines who's, who's gonna who's gonna win the race, depending on uh, on on the uh, the distance that you're actually that you're actually competing. So how do you see that cycling to running transition, where you go from having some sort of uh, high level of fatigue uh, accumulated up to that point, and then you still have to perform at a higher level of of running and you and you sort of alluded in terms uh, previously in terms of how you approach that in training and maybe you know maybe you're doing your interval sessions when you're running as part of a break session as well but how would you build that into into your durability piece yeah i think you know i don't have i don't have the answer to your question i have thoughts but certainly it, there are some parallels that you you win these big races not in the first hour or in the uh -huh. second hour or in the fifth hour in that you know or the sixth or the eighth you know and and, and so a lot of it is just strategic body of of in in cycling they call it burning matches mm -hmm. you know and try you've got a box of matches and you try to save them so that you have some at the end. So the, the cyclist will be extremely careful about little surges and, and, and extending those matches, that extra, you know, the, the extra carbohydrate depletion rates that come along with a surge at 500 watts for two minutes or whatever. Uh -huh. So part of that is, you know, at least in the cycling world, it's because of the undulating terrain and the stochastic nature of the intensity distribution. It's just being careful and trying to flatten out those spikes. 
that's probably less problematic than triathlon because it's kind of it's more steady state. Mm-hmm. But in the you know at least in the Olympic uh, distance with the rules there, there is obviously some you know the cycling is interesting because you do have drafting and it'll it takes a lot to it, you have to it's a pretty big risk mm-hmm. to try to break away because the cost on your run is, is potentially devastating, uh-huh. right? So I think this is probably an individualization issue. It's, it's if I, if you have, you know, you, you've got the classic case of the Norwegians that managed to sweep the podium during one of these triathlons yeah. and, and one of the guys went out, you know, got way ahead in the cycling part. Well, that's, that's unusual and it happened to work and they were able to bridge and, but that is a, an unusual situation where there was a, a calculation made and it barely worked, it, it, but it did work <laughs> uh, in, in the run. So I, I don't know that there is a patent answer other than that by doing good monitoring, by having a good understanding of how the athlete tends to either maintain or fade, you know, what is the appropriate utilization of their energy? And then can we change this? Can we improve it with some brick sessions where we kind of load them up? You know, we say we're going to create this fatigue situation and then help you to get used, better used to still running smoothly, economically, and fast with that residual fatigue mm-hmm. from that transition. I think that makes sense. I, you know, that's and that's what cyclists do, and that, that's when you start to maybe move away from if you're a rower or a 5,000 meter runner or something you do very very um the workouts are either clearly low intensity or they're interval uh-huh. sessions but they don't you don't mix them you know in rowing they they never mix they they either do this or they do this mm-hmm. because the race is is exactly you know it's it's six minutes of hell and so they know what's coming and they prepare for it very specifically um, but I think with these cycling pro tour, that kind of race and with the triathlon, I do think you have, it's appropriate to mix duration and intensity in a different way where you say, Hey, we need some, this needs to be a long workout to get into that state where they're partially depleted, where some of the, you know, you got partial glycogen depletion and now you still got to run fast because we need to trigger those adaptations. But we have to respect how costly those sessions are going to be. Uh-huh. Because, at least in my experience, man, that that middle of the road work, it, it is it does end up being kind of a threshold type session. Except you're really spending a lot of time at eighty five percent or so. Well, those can become extremely fatiguing because the athlete can become extremely depleted. So that can impact the next two or three days, you know, so, mm-hmm. and that has to just be taken into account is how often do we do this? Because it will come at a cost in terms of recovery. Yeah. Now that was a lot said, but I hope that makes some sense. <laughs> oh, uh, it, you know, it, it, yeah, it, it surely does. And we, we could definitely keep talking about this for, for another couple of hours for sure. So for anyone who's listening, if you're, if you're interested, just make sure that you t- tune up to at uh, Dr. Silas presentation uh, September 8th we're gonna we're gonna put the details out there for for you guys uh, for you to 
be able to rest there for it. Uh, so Dr. Siler, just so that I'm respectable of your time, uh, I've just got one final question for you. Uh, how do you see um, the monitoring of training loads or the monitoring of training evolving over the next few years, over the next two, three, four Olympic cycles? Do you feel we're, we're constantly shifting to more data-based, uh, data-driven monitoring or there's still no substitute for the coach's eye? Anytime you start asking a guy that's getting gray in the head, they're going to tend to be conservative, you know, because they, they think they've seen everything. And I do believe that there will, in the foreseeable future, still be a need for perceptual, um, just that, that uh, we call it finger feeling, that, that, you know, that, that tacit knowledge. Uh, there's been books written about this that you, good coaches just have intuition. They're, they're receiving data from lots of sources, but mm -hmm. they, their intuition comes with how they're able to put, put it all together and, and make a diagnosis. And I don't know that artificial intelligence is going to outperform the good coach, at least in the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. I still think that coaches... They're not well paid. It's not a glory job, but I think their jobs are safe for at least a couple more Olympic cycles. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I think what will the good coach will be open, cautiously skeptical. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's an appropriate way to look at the new technologies if you've been in the game a long time then you probably have a set of technologies that you're already comfortable with and that are working for you and they can be anything from a board scale to, you know and, and to to heart rate variability but you have your technologies that you're using and if they're working if it's working don't try to fix it but then cautiously be skeptical to whatever that new technology is and and play with it a little bit uh but don't sell the farm you know mm -hmm. don't i think the danger happens when young coaches just jump onto every new technology every new thing that they get fooled by the sales pitch uh you know and, and uh -huh. that's what you know trust yourself as a coach trust your your aggregated knowledge and then you know because there's a hype curve on all these technologies and they almost always tend to be overhyped at first mm -hmm. and then and then there's a then there's the trough of disillusionment as they say where you say oh man this sucks it was not at all what it was supposed to be and then you figure out well you know if we take this into account and do this it has some usefulness so it comes up with some some level of utility and you you incorporate it appropriately. Uh -huh. Now that's that's often how it goes. But just be cautiously skeptical and trust yourself. You know, if you've been in the game a while, you have a lot of knowledge. So don't let some geek scientist like me try to convince you that that they know more than you do because they don't. I don't. You know about your sport. I, I know a few things, but you know a lot if you've been in the game a while, and I trust you. And hopefully you'll trust me and together we'll, we'll get better. Nice. Fantastic. So that's, I think that's a, a good take to, to end our show today that coaches jobs are, are safe, at least for the, 
for the near future in the next few few Olympic cycles. Uh, and they're not very well paid, so it's not like everybody's trying to outcompete this. So that's <laughs> you don't become a coach because you're going to get rich. You know, and you, you have other reasons for doing it. So. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Uh, Dr. Seiler, uh, thank you so much for your for your participation. Uh, I'll make the show notes available. And once again, we're we're very excited about your about your presentation in in September. So thank you once again. It'll be fun. Thanks for having me.